Well, as we've spent uh, a few weeks working through 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10, uh, I'm face to face with my own failure to be uncomfortable. What I mean by that is recently, um, I've, I've thought a lot about the ways that I fail to make sacrifices for others. I've thought about the phone calls that I've ignored, maybe the texts that I didn't answer. I've thought about the times that someone has invited me to dinner and I didn't go. I've thought about the conversations that I've avoided with my neighbors, conversations that I may have been able to present the gospel to them, and I avoided them simply because I was too tired. Sure, most of these excuses were legitimate prior obligations or or being sick. I'm not talking about those moments, though. I've been thinking about the times when I just didn't want to do something. By God's grace, those are few, but there are instances that have stuck with me. In God's providence, I recently taught a class here um, uh, in our Sunday seminar class uh, based mostly on a book uh, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radical Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. In this book, uh, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, the author, talks about practicing, pra- practicing radical hospitality with her neighbors, with her community. Sometimes it's interesting to see how God is not so subtle in directing our path to show us, here's what you need to do. Finished teaching this class, and, and now I'm preaching on, on, on 1 Corinthians, and it's this, this kind of this tsunami of, of, you need to fix this. You need to work on this. This is an area of your life, Ryan, that you need to address. T- to understand where this book comes from, though, you need to know a little bit about Butterfield. She was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. She was also an activist and a practicing lesbian. Though she was raised Catholic, her only experience in in the Christian faith and with churches really came down to her research. She was writing about the religious right, politically speaking. And she wrote an article that was published in a Syracuse newspaper, and a, a, a pastor in Syracuse wrote her a letter back, and I think she described this letter as the nicest disagreement letter that she's ever received. And so over the next year or two, she was invited over to this pastor's house. And week after week, she would go to have dinner with this pastor and his wife and and members of their church, and they would worship together, and, and she would hear the gospel proclaimed. This pastor stepped out of his comfort zone so that she could hear Christ. I'm sure that that pastor would have enjoyed having a night by himself, right? Go to bed early, read a book, watch a game. But instead, he chose to, week after week, invite this woman who who the world says we are ideological enemies. And he said, come, come into my home, eat. It was through this hospitality that Butterfield came to know Christ. It was through this hospitality that she not only came to know Christ, she came to know her husband, Kent, who was a pastor. A few years after her conversion, they were married. Rosaria and Kent now open their home every night of the week for their neighbors to come in and have good food and good conversation. 
when tragedy struck their neighborhood, Butterfield's, the Butterfield's house became a counseling center. When neighbors have nowhere to go on the holidays, their house becomes a house of family time. I say this, her book, Outside of the Bible, is the most convicting thing that I've ever read. I've never felt so selfish as I read those words. She writes this. Those who live out, of, uh, live out radical, radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. They take biblical theology seriously as well as Christian creeds and confessions and traditions. Here's another quote. Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Powerful stuff. The root of her book is that hospitality is at the core of the Christian life. And at the core of that is self-sacrifice. Because you can't be hospitable unless you're self-sacrificial. You, you can't welcome people into your home week after week or day after day unless you're making sacrifices yourself. We make personal sacrifices so that others in the church can find encouragement and those outside of the family of God can hear the good news of the gospel, come to Christ in repentance and faith. They can see us living a radically different life. Now, I've thought about this book a lot as I was preparing this week. And I've thought about how being hospitable means that you're putting someone else above yourself. It's radical. It's the theme of what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10, that we are putting others in front of ourselves. Our desires get pushed off to the side if it means that someone else gets the benefit of it. I've also been thinking this week about my own life. And how much I've changed in the last 20 or 25 years. A few things you can see. Um, I've gotten a little bit grumpier with age and children. Don't need any comments, but I've gained extra weight. Somehow my hairline keeps moving backwards. Missing some hair from day to day. I see that I have, uh, I also see that there's a lot more gray. And not just in my hair, but in the world. See, when I was a teenager and into my 20s, I thought everything was black and white. I thought that everything was either right or wrong. There was no middle ground. I thought that everyone who believed what I believed was correct and everyone else was an enemy. And as I've gotten older, I'm seeing more gray. I'm seeing that there are issues where that people can have disagreement and still love one another. And I've discovered that I've been wrong a lot more than I've been right in my life. I think I failed to examine the words of, of Paul right here and modeled my own behavior after how he lived. I failed to live up to that standard. For a long time, I've held up my right to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and however I want as the highest aim. It's my Christian freedom. I'm not tied to the Old Testament law. I can do whatever I want. The recipients of this letter, the church in Corinth, thought the same way that I did. 
Since Paul is addressing an issue in the church, they must have been known to boast about their Christian freedom. And Paul has challenged them in this letter, and he does it again and again. He says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He's seen their behavior. He knows their story, and it's disappointing to him. See, what they're doing is kind of a strange kind of way of behaving. It's not willfully sinning. They're not going out and committing crimes. They're not hurting people physically. But what they're doing, and they aren't breaking laws, but just because they aren't breaking a law, it doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay. Jesus said, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what's the second? To love your neighbor as yourself. I have every right to play music as loud as I want until it's legally time to stop. I can thump the bass in my backyard until whatever the point where the city says, turn it off. I can do that, right? And I can do it every night. But is that being a good neighbor? Just because I have a right to do something doesn't mean that it's a good idea. A good neighbor sets aside his or her rights so that the other neighbor can have a better life. Proclaiming the gospel through our actions that you mean more than I do. Your desires, your blessing, your benefit, all of those are more important than what I want out of life. And what Paul was speaking into, though, was bigger than a neighborhood. He was writing to a church a group of Christians who had been made spiritual siblings through Christ. Of all people, of all people, these are the ones that should have been putting neighborly love higher than everyone else, right? Listen, when non-Christian groups are known to love their neighbors better than the church, we are in bad shape. I've said this before. If our church disappears right now, do our neighbors even, would they even blink an eye about it? Would they care? But if a local food pantry goes away, they'll feel it. We ought to be known. We ought to be loving. We ought to be the most hospitable people in the world. Why? Because God has been the most hospitable to us. That we are the recipients of his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And it ought to burn inside of us to go be the same to the world. So Paul says this. Yeah, you can. You could do those things. But is it helpful to others? Does it build others up? This is the pattern of life that we ought to emulate. Especially in the church. Now, Again, by God's grace, it hasn't been here in my two years. But I've been in church business meetings where people will stand up and, and scream at each other. You've got one person on this side, you've got another person on this side, and they're yelling at each other, and they can't, can't seem to find cooperation at all. And I've talked to people who've said flat out, look, I'm a member of a church. I'll come to church, I'll come to Sunday school, I'll serve, I'll do everything, but I will not go back to a business meeting. And I said, why? They said, I'm not gonna sit there when people yell at each other. I'm not gonna sit there when people are just nasty and mean to one another. 
See, we may never see the harm that it does, but the, the conversations that I have have showed me that those kind of behaviors, the, the lack of hospi- hospi- hospitality, it, it damages people, it affects people, it hurts people. And the truth is, if we can't love one another inside of the church, how in the world are we ever going to convince people outside that we love them too? See, Paul has already addressed the eating of food offered to idols. In fact, this issue is so big that he's given two chapters. Now, he didn't write it in chapters, but it's divided up. It's a pretty sizable portion of his letter. So why does he keep talking about this? Well, he said that a Christian should refrain from eating anything that could cause someone to stumble. Then he says that Christians should refrain because partaking in food offered to idols is really demonic. It's, it's idol worship. But then he brings up this question, and again, it's a little foreign to us. We don't have to deal with this, really. But he says, what happens when a Christian goes into the market to buy food that's been offered to idols or that we don't know whether it's been offered to idols? So in Paul's time, what would happen is is that the the meat would be brought in or the food would be brought in or the animals. The animals would be killed. The food would be offered to the idols. It would be burned. The priest would eat some. The people in the temple would eat some. And then whatever was left over would be uh, sent outside of the temple to be sold at one of the markets. And so if you can imagine a city center with a temple inside and there's markets flanking the temple on the sides. And so the question is, okay, we know that We have freedom to eat whatever we want, but we can't really partake in this if we know that it's been offered to idols because we're participating in idolatry. So what happens if we don't know where the meat comes from at all? I mean, you you can see this in your own life. You go to the meat section at the store, and and you'll see stickers on the the little the the outside of the the packaging, and it may say 80-20. Maybe you can tell by the taste, but I can't tell the difference between 80-20 and 85-15. I have no idea what the difference in that is. And to be honest with you, I can't tell the difference between something that's processed or grass-fed. I have no idea. I'm trusting the label, right? I'm trusting that this, this was grass-fed beef. Who knows? Unless you were there... With the slaughtering, you can't be certain. And so the, the idea that Paul's given in this verse is to say that, that uh, we've seen that it's okay for a Christian to eat food offered to idols if they don't know what it was. So ignorance, at least in this case, is a valid excuse. So the issue for these people, they wanted to avoid, or Paul was advising them to avoid eating food that was offered to idols. And he said, look, if you don't know, you're good. If you don't know where the food came from, you're good. But if a Christian knows that they're doing something that could harm another, in this case, it's eating food offered to idols, they must stop offending. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Every one of us should be seeking out the good of others instead of our own. This is not unique to this book of the Bible. This is the premise for how God's people are to operate in the world. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, love is not rude and love does not insist on its, own, on its own way. Romans 15, let each of us please his neighbor for good to build him up. Philippians 2, let each of you look not to your own interest but also to the interest of others. This is a common theme that's running through Paul's writings. He's saying you need to value others before yourself. So you have a preference? You, you need 
to take a nap. You want an hour to read a book. You want to watch that game. If there is someone in need, that someone is much more important than your desire to watch basketball, than your desire to take a nap. Self-sacrificing love for others. And this goes contrary to what the world teaches, doesn't it? Selfishness may be valued by some, but it's nowhere found in Scripture. One of the most influential political philosophers of all time is a a woman by the name of Ayn Rand. She wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and other books as well. And and a bunch of her essays were compiled into a book uh, called The Virtue of Selfishness. In addition to her dislike of big government, Rand wrote that altruism, the concern for the well-being of others, is destructive. Listen to her words. Man, every man, is an end in himself not a means to the ends of others. He must live for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself. He must work for his rational self-interest with the achievement of his own happiness as, as the highest moral purpose of his life. She was not a believer. She was actually anti-gospel. But this is a popular way to view life, even if someone's never read anything by Rand. It's called being selfish. And the truth is, we're really good at it, aren't we? You never have to teach a child how to be selfish. It comes natural. Mine, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 illustrates this well. I'm going to read this to you. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus, as people, when they ask me questions, I say, are you ready for the answer? And if you know me, you know the answer may be 20 minutes long. So this man should have known better because Jesus is going to now speak in a parable. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on him, his, his, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and giving them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asks this man, and you can imagine this picture. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. When the priest and the Levite came upon the crime scene, which it was, it was a crime scene. They robbed him, they stripped him, and they beat him almost to death. And when the priest and the Levite came upon the scene, they were likely afraid. Well, this could happen to me. What happens if these guys jump out from the rocks and start beating me up? I've got a family, I've got got a job, I've I've got things to do. 
And so they were afraid. The man's humanity meant nothing compared to their safety at that point. So they ignored the fact that the man was dying on the side of the road, but then a Samaritan, someone who was seen as unclean, someone who was unworthy of being helped, saw this man and had compassion on him. The danger didn't go away. The Samaritan could have been beaten and killed and robbed, but he saw that that man on the ground had worth and he had value. It's like what we see in the movies sometimes where Someone will be uh, abused or someone will be hurt, and by the end of the movie, it's the person who was abused is kind of the hero of the film. That person set aside their own preferences and their own desires to get revenge in order to be a blessing on someone else. The Samaritans were hated, and the one walking on the road could have seen the man lying there and said, well, you know what? All these years of hatred, you're getting what you deserve. But instead, he took care of the man at great cost to himself. He was physically in danger. And then he paid for the man to be taken care of. And he even said this, whatever bills that that man racks up, I'll pay for him. No matter the cost, I'll cover the bills. See, we're all born selfish. But God has said that we're not supposed to stay that way. Those who are forgiven by God must be loving neighbors and show grace and mercy and kindness to those around us, even those who hate us. This is evidence that someone is actually part of the family of God. So we must always take care of others. But how does this principle then apply to eating of food sold in the open market? As stated earlier, some food was burned, some food was eaten, and some of the food was sold. So none of us would want to partake in eating of food offered to idols, because that's demonic activity. So what does a Christian do then? What are we supposed to do when we're not sure? Look at verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Paul says, since believers didn't know the origin of the food, they were free to eat without worry. Some of you are people who have very strong consciences, and if, if you don't kind of rein those in, it can drive you nuts. You can start thinking about things that you did 30 or 40 years ago, and you can't sleep at night. You've got to be careful with that. And this is the same thing, that if, if, if you are, are, are so to the extreme of, well, you know what, we can't eat any meat if it was possibly offered to idols, now you've just created a yoke around your neck, and now you can't eat any of that meat because you don't know where it came from. Verse 26, this is kind of Paul giving a kind of a, a supplement to what he just said. He's, he's kind of like toning it and saying, hey, listen, um, yes, you can eat whatever you want. You should be able to. Why? Verse 26, for the Lord, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We have no business participating in idolatry, but if we don't know what's happening, if we don't know where that meat comes from, eat, eat to your heart's delight. You're not participating in something. You, you belong to Christ. You do not belong to those idols. And if you don't know what happened to that meat, go ahead and eat it. It's fine. Paul writes as much in 1 Timothy 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. All right, so now as we're continuing in this, we have a couple premises. Now we're left with another possible scenario. What, what would happen if we're sitting at someone else's table and someone chirps in our ear and says, hey, do you know this food was offered to idols? 
What's our response then? Does our gratefulness override our obedience to avoid demonic activity? Do we kind of just sit there and start sweating and just kind of nibble on that? Now, at this point in history, sharing a meal in someone's home was very important. It was a normal occurrence. Now, I want to pause for a second in the sermon and do a little sidebar. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's in the text, so I figured it's a, it's a good time to address this. Um, I'd encourage you to invite people to your home. Invite people to sit at the table with you. Make them dinner. Make them a meal. Feed them. Spend two or three hours at your table. Just have conversations with people. Yes, it's out of your comfort zone. I know it is. And it may mean that you have one less free night during your week, but the spiritual growth of others is far more important. Listen, to, to share your table with other fellow believers, it bonds you together. And to share your table with people who don't know Christ, you are able to present the gospel something tangibly to give to them. You're showing them love. You're showing them something that they don't get anywhere else. End of sidebar. So sharing a meal was common in Paul's day. And it should be today. Look at how Paul fleshes this out. Verses 27 through 30. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So you're good. As long as no one says anything, you're good. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced of that for which I give thanks? One of two things is happening here. Um, in verse 28, it said, if someone says to you, now it could be one of two people, it could be um, another Christian at the table. So you could be at, at the table of, uh, of people who are not believers, and then another Christian kind of jabs you in the ribs and says, hey... You probably shouldn't eat this. This has been offered to idols. In that case, the conscience of our brother or sister is more important than our own appetite. We say, you know what? We can't partake in this. Rather than start an argument about how our Christian liberty allows us to eat whatever we want and how we're no longer under the Old Testament law, we should put aside those preferences and say, for the sake of this brother or sister, I'm not going to eat this. Another possibility is that the person saying that is not a Christian. An unbeliever doesn't want to offend a Christian, so to tell the believer that the food has been offered in sacrifice. Believers are free to eat whatever they want, except if it's going to bind the conscience of someone else. We don't want to ruin our testimony. And either way, the most prudent thing is to avoid that food. Now, I know what you're saying. You're like, okay, well, we don't have these deals. We don't, we don't have food offered to idols. And even if we did, we... How, who, what would that even look like? We don't know. But then he, Paul ties it together that's something very applicable to us. It's found in verses 31 through 11.1. It's the purpose of Christian freedom. This is a, a suggestion from Paul, a statement from Paul that has huge implications for us. Look at these verses. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the purpose of chapters 9 and chapters 10. Do everything for the glory of God. Whatever you do, eating, drinking, 
anything, do it for the glory of God. Take that and make that the aim of your life. That's what Paul's saying here. We must all want to glorify God in everything that we do. And that's our aim, and it's a good aim. But we all know that we miss the mark, don't we? That we miss hitting that mark. We, we, our aim is off. We, we miss what happens when we sin. The only thing I can remember is I better be very glad that God's uh, salvation that he's given to me is not based on how good I am or how often I behave. It's a work of faith. It's not a matter of obedience. God loves us despite of our sin because we are his. We belong to him. This gives us rest. This gives us hope and comfort and peace. The, the waiting on that future day when we will never have to deal with our own sin ever again, that day will come, but it is not today. Yes, Christians, we are free from the eternal effects of our sin, meaning that we are found not guilty in God's eyes because Jesus was free from guilt, but we're still here. And that means that sin still exists in us. Do we always seek out ways to bless others? Do we always take into account how our actions impact the lives of others? Do we value our own freedom over the growth and well-being of others in the church and in our community? See, a works-based religion would say that since you fail, you're in danger of losing whatever gift that you were given. You're in danger of falling out of God's graces because you messed up. See, I think we have a, a problem the way we view God sometimes. We're, we're, it's dangerous, but we sometimes view God as our boss. We have to please our boss to earn his favor or her favor. We have to sell more, make more, do more, achieve more. And when we do that, we get promotion, we get advancement, we get a bigger salary, bigger job, a corner office. We get all of those things that we're hoping to because we've done good things. And so we translate that to our faith. And we say, well, if I only do more or, or act better, then God's going to give me blessings. God's not your boss. He's your father. Your reward is already found. Your reward is Christ. Your reward is not based on whether you've been mostly good or not. Your reward is the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you. We aim to do all for the glory of God, but only Jesus did that perfectly. Does it mean that we uh, have the freedom to do whatever we want now? No. Paul's been dealing with that already, but it does mean that we keep pushing forward even when we fail. At each instance of failure, God is there. The stronger we grow in our faith, the more aware we are of our own sin. Here's the crazy story of your Christian life. That, that, that a new Christian may believe, well, you know what, I'm, I'm a believer, so, so I'm going to sin less. No, the truth of the matter is the further you grow in your faith, the more aware you are of your own sin. The, the closer you go to Christ, the more you realize how actually far away you are in and of yourself. And you can't do anything to fix it. This is often most apparent when we deal with others. Paul says in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to those in the church. He's saying, do not do anything that prevents someone from hearing the gospel, coming to know Christ in repentance and faith. And do not do anything that hinders someone's growth. 
This is where we apply it to our lives. And he says in verse 33 and onward that Christians should imitate him as he seeks to live a life that glorifies God. He says that he doesn't do it for his own advantage. Paul's not doing any of this for his own advantage. He's doing it so that people can hear the gospel and be saved. But the truth is, and I'm re- I understand this, there is a pull for those who are in a position of influence, whether that's through media, through books, or through Sunday mornings in churches where, where people come and listen to someone speak to them for 30 or 40 or an hour. There is a, a pull uh, for, for me to tell you how you should live. Isn't that the reputation of preachers in the world? A bunch of hypocrites standing up here telling you how you should live when the preachers and pastors are going and doing horrible things behind the scenes. Part of that comes from a questionable history of preaching that's more focused on changing people's behavior and not changing their hearts. The gospel is what I preach. I don't preach change behavior. But another reason is, is because preachers are viewed in a light that comes from the fact that we don't often admit our own sins. Because it's so easy to stand up here and act like I've got everything put together. It's easy to do that. I had someone come into my office here once. And this person said um, that she didn't think that I should be telling people that I suffer from anxiety and depression. And she said, it makes you look weak. She said, we need a strong leader in the pulpit. We need someone who, who stands up there and people can follow. You know, we, we need that kind of that rugged George Washington kind of guy where standing and, and fighting in the battle. And, and I understood what she was saying. She said, I, I, sh- I shouldn't speak about the things that weren't my fault, depression or anxiety, or, or things that are, my own doubts and my insecurities, those are my fault. She said, I need to be a stronger leader, and I wasn't doing that. But I can tell you this. If the Apostle Paul were standing here right this morning, he would say that I hate the fact that I keep sinning even though that I know it's wrong. I hate the fact that I keep doing the things that I know are wrong, and yet I keep doing them over and over again. He'd tell you that he can't be perfect, you can't be perfect, no matter how hard you try. That's why he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He doesn't just say, hey guys, follow me. That's what abuse looks like in churches. Hey, I've written the books. I'm drawing the crowds, follow me, this is my show. Uh, listening to a podcast one day, that, or the other day, that this pastor whose church fell apart, not surprisingly, said this. He said, I am the brand. He would say that to his church and his staff. And the truth is, he was. He was the brand of that church. And guess what? The church doesn't exist anymore. And it was 10,000 strong because he made himself the brand. Listen, our, church, our brand, our church is not me. It's not anything that we do except for the gospel. That is our brand. That's what we're promoting. That's what we're pushing. And that's what Paul pushed. Paul says, you follow me as long as I'm faithful to Christ. He preaches a message that is unapologetically centered around the gospel. To Christians, he says this, shift your focus to the care of those around you. Focus on building up believers and loving your neighbors. And he says this to those who are not Christians. 
He says, I've been moved to travel to preach the gospel all over the known world so that you can come to know Christ. In Acts 28, people were coming to hear Paul preach the gospel. I'll read this to you. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging, to Paul, in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. He taught them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he says, but others disbelieved. What was the message that Paul preached? If you read through the book of Romans, specifically Romans 1 through 4, you see this gospel message. He says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is apparent to all who see, that, that you can look up and see the stars and you can say that something bigger than me has created this. And he said the wrath of God is on the ungodly. He says that we're all guilty of rebellion. And then in Romans chapter 3, he, he says that there is a way for us to be seen as righteous before God. Romans 3.24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is only through Christ that we can be forgiven. Now the truth is, is if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, all this talk about church and Christian behavior may mean nothing to you, or it may even make you angry because you've seen the hypocrisy from Christians. One pastor told me, or I heard him say this one time, he said, uh, someone came up to him and said, hey, I can't join your church because there's full of hypocrites. And he said, well, there's always room for one more. We're all hypocrites. We all fail to live up to the standard that we proclaim. Every single one of us. We fail to live up to the standard that we see in our passage today. But set aside what you think about Christians for a minute. Think about what you would say if you were to die today and stand before God, the creator of all things. And God says this, what have you done? Why should I allow you into my presence? What would your answer be? If God knew and played back in front of you every evil thought that you've ever had, every sinful desire you've had, everything that you've said that was unkind to people, what would you see? If your defense was, well, I'm mostly good, it's not going to work. The only way to have all of your badness removed is to trust Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 4. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Nothing that you can do can please God on your own. It is only when we come to Christ in faith and repentance that we can be forgiven and counted as righteous. It's kind of like this. I have no idea if this is true or not, but it kind of seems like this, is that, you know, those pictures when we go to heaven... That, that when we stand before God, and you kind of, all the movies do this, and it's not true, but you, you can imagine like the line, and we're standing in clouds, silly. And we're standing, and, and God stands there and says, why should I allow you into my presence? And, and it's like this, and, and this is a cartoonish, childish way of thinking this, but it's, it's almost as if, or it is as if, Jesus kind of steps right in front of us. And Jesus says, no, don't look at them, look at me. Father, Father, when you look this way, I don't want you to see them anymore. I'm covering them. My, my blood has covered them. It's forgiven them. Now when you see your children, you see me instead of them. 
Christ is our mediator. He stands between the wrath of God and us, the wrath that we deserve. This is the the, the earnings that we've created on our own. But those who believe in Jesus will have their faith counted as righteousness. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the unbelievers, to the people who didn't know Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is the same gospel that I preached to you today. If you don't know Christ, trust in him, and then your faith, the trust that you give to him, will then be counted to you as righteousness. You'll be cleansed, forgiven. When you put your faith in Christ and you turn from your sin, the righteousness of Christ is then given to you. You're free from the weight of having to perfectly obey, and you're given the freedom to love others as Christ loves the church. Would you pray with me?